welcome to the Grow My Salon Business podcast, where we focus on the business side of hairdressing. I'm your host, Anthony Whitaker, and I'll be talking to thought leaders in the hairdressing industry, discussing insightful, provocative, and inspiring ideas that matter. So get ready to learn, get ready to be challenged, get ready to be inspired, and most importantly, get ready to grow your salon business. Podcasts have boomed in recent years, and at times like this, they are extremely beneficial for people everywhere in order to access good information and inspiration. We produce this podcast because we love it, and we know that it benefits the industry. So today, I'd like to start off by giving a shout out and a thank you to one of our listeners, Mr. Ian Harold, for a five-star review he gave us on Apple Podcasts. Ian wrote, Anthony's podcasts are some of the most thought-provoking and inspiring listening that I have in my week. It is by far the best one hour, and I always look forward to it. As a men's hairdresser or barber, it is sometimes hard to listen to a lot of hairdressing coaches, but Anthony's wide variety of guests cover a wealth of information. If you're in the hair industry, this is a must listen. Thank you, Ian. That is very much appreciated. Now, if you too would like to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, we would appreciate that too. By doing that, it helps other people find us, but more importantly, it motivates us to keep producing great content for you. So if you go to Apple Podcasts, scroll to the bottom of the page, select ratings and reviews, and write us a review. It's as simple as that, and we would be very appreciative. Now, on with the show. So at the time of recording, it is Friday, the 24th of July, 2020. And in most of the world, salons are now reopening, but in some countries and states or cities, they have been closed down again already due to the second spike in the coronavirus infection rates. Such as it is with my guest today on today's podcast, it is Los Angeles salon owner, Paula Peralta. In today's podcast, we will discuss the advantages of being a late starter in the beauty industry, Paula's journey in the industry the four energies needed to succeed in business and the Black Lives Matter movement and the momentum behind it, and lots more. So without further ado, welcome to the show, Paula Peralta. Hello, Anthony. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really, really excited for this conversation. I'm excited about it too. It took ages to make it happen. So I'm, I'm so glad to uh, finally be recording this with you uh, over Zoom. So um, let's, let's start off like I do with uh, all of my podcasts. Um, I like to, people to give a, a quick overview, um, you know, like a two or three minute, who is Paula Peralta? So give us your two minute backstory. Well, how do you condense your whole life in two to three minutes? Um, so I am a hairdresser. Uh, I live in Los Angeles, California. I also am a brand ambassador for Paul Mitchell, as well as an entrepreneur. Um, and yeah, I, I really love to have an intersection between beauty and wellness and personal development. And that is where all of my businesses intersect and create greater in the world. Good. Okay. Well, we're going to dig into uh, all of that a lot more as we go. So uh, I want to start off with, with um, I know that you were a late starter in this industry. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, I know that I gather from what I read that you didn't start until you were 29. So, you know, give us your, um, let's just t talk to us about that. Tell us uh, your journey into this industry. Why, why hairdressing and why all of a sudden when you were 29? 
Yeah. So I had a really traditional, um, like post high school kind of trajectory. Um, so I graduated and went to, uh, a four year university and studied there and, um, just, I didn't love it, but it was just what was, it, it was what was supposed to be done. <laughs> and so, um, I went and then I, from that, I got a job, that job turned into a career and, um, I worked my way up in a company and just, yeah, that was kind of, that was going to be my life is working, you know, at a desk, uh, eight hours a day. Well, realistically I was working like 12, 14, sometimes 16 hours a day. Okay. <laughs> and, um, and completely yeah, just, unaffiliated with the hairdressing industry. Nothing to do with. Right. I, yeah. Yeah. And, um, and then I got laid off yeah. in like 2000, like 2009 and, um, the economy was not doing well and the company, um, you know, downsized. And so, um, I got laid off and it was interesting because it was a really great opportunity um, to look at what I'm seeing a theme here, actually. <laughs> it was a really great opportunity to look at like what I had chosen up to that point, like where I'd gotten to at that point and, and actually look at, well, what do I actually want to create as my future? And the job I had was great and I was making really great money, um, like, you know, six figures a year. And once I got laid off, I started to look at it and I had a friend that was a hairdresser and she was working maybe like three to four days a week, making almost as much money as I was making working seven days a week, insane hours. Right. And so I was like, maybe, maybe I could try that. And also because a lot of my layoff was related to a recession. Um, mm -hmm. I, I saw how, even though there was a recession, her business had been unaffected. And so, um, we had a conversation and she was like, I think you'd really like it. Um, and it really piqued the like creative side of myself. And, um, I figured I could try it. And if I didn't like it, then I could, I'd always have something else to fall back on. And so I chose to go to beauty school and I fell in love with it and had some incredible mentors along the way. And now 10 years later. <laughs> so it, it wasn't one of those, you know, oh my God, I always wanted to be a hairdresser and my mum and dad made me go to university and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it was a hankering for something. And then I finally got my chance to pursue it. It was just completely well, unplanned, unexpected that your life would take that, you know, left turn. You know, it's funny because you would think that and that, I think that's kind of how it sounds. But when I even look back at pictures from high school or even pictures from when I was in university, um, I was always the one that was doing people's hair and like mm. waxing their eyebrows. And like I was always getting people ready for the dances and doing their makeup. So I had an inclination towards like cosmetology and like the beauty industry. And it was something I always really loved, like beauty and fashion. But I just being a hairdresser was never, and it was never even something that occurred to me as a viable yeah. career. Like I just yeah. didn't even know that it existed really. Um, like I, it just wasn't in my awareness. Sure. Like, yeah, yeah. and yeah. so, um, I think I was always like, it was probably always in my blood, but I just didn't like, I didn't ever really acknowledge it because I was on such a traditional trajectory of like one of the first in my family to even go to college. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that whole, whole story was, um, was where I was at. So I never even considered being a hairdresser until yeah. I, what was, your, what was your degree that you did? English. So it was in literary studies. Um, so again, like that, that in and of itself is kind of a, a funny thing because 
everyone was like, well, what are you going to do with an English degree? And I was like, I don't be educated. <laughs> like I didn't, you know, even, even the choice to go to college, I was like, yeah. it's not really something that I really wanted to do, but I just did it. And then I was like, well, I'm going to just learn something that I like, which at that point, literary studies, I loved reading and books and, you know, all, all of the pieces of that. So that's what I chose. And um, it's interesting because even as now as a hairdresser and as like a business coach and an entrepreneur, I spend more time articulating and reading and extrapolating and all of those things that are really connected to my, to my English degree. So I think I use it more now than I did even when I was in the corporate world. Yeah, exactly. Good. Okay. So you do beauty school, you, you fall in love with the industry, you love the craft, you, you've got great mentors and stuff. You finish beauty school, you go and work in a salon, you build up a client base, etc. Uh, what, what were some of the advantages of being a late starter? So one of a couple, there were a couple of advantages to being a late starter in the beauty industry. So the first is um, I didn't have a plan B. So when I got laid off, I had my severance package. I used the majority of it to pay for beauty school. And then I lived on next to nothing for a year while I went through school. And so being older one, um, I, I was a little, I would say from a maturity level, more equipped to like, Mm -hmm manage that um, mm. emotionally and mentally and physically and in all the ways and financially. Um, and then also because I didn't have a plan B, like I was, I'm from Washington state at this point I was living in California and um, you know, I didn't have anyone taking care of me. And so to have to figure it out as I was going was like, that's, that's what I had to do. I didn't have another choice. And what that created was a sense of urgency where I was super present in school. I was constantly pushing my um, educators, my instructors Mm. um, to like, get me the information, more information. Um, And I think I was kind of like, I was, they all knew in the school that like, if I was asking for more, just to like, give it to me because I was going to keep bothering them until they gave me the answers or gave me the clarity that I was looking for. Um, But while I was in school, I actually met Lucy Dowdy, who's now the creative director for Paul Mitchell. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time she was, um, traveling as an educator, a platform artist. Um, and she actually wasn't even yet, uh, the editorial director for Paul Mitchell. And so I started connecting with her and, um, I was doing photo shoots on my own, um, as a future professional, as a student in, mm-hmm. in beautiful. And so I would send her, I had never met her, but I saw her work in a magazine. And so I would email her photos of my work. Um, and she would just, you know, kind of encourage me and, and give me a little bit of feedback. And then I finally actually met her about a year into school or sorry, about eight months into school. And, um, I asked her if I could assist her and, like the timing on it was amazing because her assistant actually just been hired and moved to Italy to start working. And so she didn't have an assistant. And so I just kept following up with her, kept following up with her, kept following up with her. And then finally, after like a month, um, she, there was an opportunity for me to go, um, create with her. And so I like got in my car with the like negative, probably $60 in my bank account and drove up to LA to like assist her on a photo shoot. And, um, that started like what is now like a 10 year long, like mentorship, friendship, um, just like, just a really, really great relationship that I'm so grateful for. Um, so the, my first few years as a hairdresser, actually, I worked as an editorial stylist. So, um, because when I graduated, I then went straight into like assisting Lucy, um, Mm -hmm. and, 
I would travel with her and just, and then meanwhile was booking my own gigs. Yeah. Um, as you didn't work in a salon and build up a clientele. Not initially. Right. Um, so I did that. And then it was probably like a couple, like I would say a year or two into being an editorial stylist that I realized um, I enjoyed set work and I enjoyed the creative component of it, but I actually really desired more of the like one-on-one connection of working with guests. And so then, then I went into a salon and started building up my clientele um, and stepped away from um, what was a pretty actually like successful like starting to be a successful editorial career. Mm. Um, I actually just desired the the energy of being behind the chair. Um, so then that's when I, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's one I, of the great things about, you know, the hairdressing industry is there is actually lots of different paths that you can follow should you choose to. And, you know, different paths are right at different times of your life. So it's a, it's yeah. an interesting story. Uh, at what point did you know that it was the right time to open a salon? So I actually kind of fell into the like salon ownership thing. Um, I, so I had moved from one side of Los Angeles to the other and um, the commute to my salon had gone from like, I don't know, maybe 10 minutes to like an hour and 10 minutes okay. and each way. And so the commute was just killing me. And so there was a salon that was close to where I then moved to that was, um, was they had open chairs. And so I'd spoken to them and said, Hey, if something comes up or if there's a bit an availability, because I'd educated there. So I knew the team um, pretty well. And I said, if something comes available, I'd love the opportunity to shift, you know, shift gears. And it happened like, again, like most things in my life, once I make the choice, like almost instantaneously <laughs> things shift. And so um, I started working there and a f- like a few months into me working there, um, the existing partnership dissolved. And so, um, one partner went away and then the current partner, um, who was then my business partner, um, invited me to come along and join, jump on as a salon owner. So I was like, yeah, I mean, I, it wasn't something, it wasn't something that I'd like always dreamed of, or that I thought was like part of necessarily my path or my journey, but I knew that it would be a great opportunity to learn and grow. Um, and so I did that for a few years and then, um, she started to like step away and create different businesses as well. Um, and then, yeah, I just like had the opera. I, I had some really like, it was a really great, or it is like being a salon owner is very wow. educational. We'll say. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it is. I mean, um, being opening any small business, I always think is the best education you can possibly get uh, because you either learn or you don't survive. It's as simple as that. And you learn a lot about a lot of things. I mean, uh, uh, you learn a lot about yourself. You learn a lot about other people. And, you know, you learn about marketing. You learn about financial control. You learn about all sorts of stuff that most people who open salons um, just walk blindly into and they realize real quick that they need to learn. And I, I think, you know, that when I ask you that question, what are some of the advantages of being older, uh, a late starter in this industry is that you were already prepared for a lot of that stuff, you know, because, yeah. you know, if you were 29, when you went to beauty school, you'd already spent, you know, nine years or whatever in the workforce. And so the social skills that you get and just the understanding of people and management and finances, et cetera, uh, uh, you know, set you up. Um, yeah. much more so. And I, I, I'm a great believer in, in, you know, that like what you sort of alluded to that, you know, when you, when you sort of put it out to the universe, 
then things sort of happen, don't they? Do you know what I mean? It's like when you think maybe it's time for me to open a salon or maybe I should open a salon, then all of a sudden there it is. It's in front of you. It's, it's, it's weird how uh, that sort of thing um, happens, but it, it definitely does. Yeah, I think um, also I think also the other thing about that that um, was really interesting is that, and I'm actually now seeing the gift of this is that I had already essentially failed, right? Like I I had a career that I got laid off from, yeah. and so that that fear of failure, that piece of like the fear of failure, no longer existed for me. So I knew that I could choose anything and worst case scenario doesn't work out. And then I have to create something different because I'd already made a huge career shift. Whereas I think like so early on, I saw a lot of my, my much younger peers coming out of cosmetology school or beauty school. And they were so afraid to get started because they were afraid to fail that many of them never even started. Yeah. Yeah. So that was like one of the biggest gifts looking looking back at this like of of being older is that i didn't have so much the like what if i fail it's like yeah you fail and you move on to something something else and it always works out somehow yeah i'm a great believer in that too so how long how long ago did you open the salon um so the salon actually had been there for about 50 years yeah and it changed um owners a few times so i was there i was um so like four it's been like four years ago Okay. And before we started this call, you just happened to drop the little (laughs) bombshell to me that you've now decided to close the salon. So talk talk to us about that and why you did that. And I mean, we're in this, this time where, uh, what is today at C 24th of July. Uh, so we're right in the thick of, of, of COVID-19 still, uh, you're in California. California's just had a second lockdown. So just to give it some context, uh, talk to us about where, where you're currently at after now salon ownership for the last four years. Um, you very recently, uh, decided that that is no longer for you. So tell us about that part of your journey. Yeah. So it's interesting. Um, it is actually, again, like, and this is where I like when I reference the getting laid off and having a little bit of time to kind of reassess it's, it's interesting because it has a very similar energy to what it was like to have like the, the first coat, the first round of shutdowns with um, COVID-19. So what's interesting is, so my, um, my business partner essentially like stepped away and was like, Hey, you know, like I desired to choose other things and kind of like gifted me the business. Um, Mm. and so for me, like I love being behind the chair and, and like I said, I never really had a burning desire to be a salon owner and it just, it, that's what showed up and it was fun for me and I learned a ton. Um, and so so looking at closing the salon was something we had been looking at for a while. Um, again, like I said, just cause we were going in different directions and, um, you know, I was choosing to, like hold on to it for a lot of reasons, not wanting to like let the team down. It's like all the things that, that you go into as an employee and like as an owner, um, you know, you have a true caring and kindness for your team. And so you want to make sure they're taken care of. And um, what was really interesting is with when COVID happened, that first shutdown, um, I just had space to look at what, like what was filling my life, what was working for me, what wasn't working for me, um, what, what could be even greater? Like what if maybe there was something that wasn't wrong, but I knew that there was another possibility. And so I spent a lot of time, that first part, um, the first few weeks of it really looking at all of that. And for me, one of the things that kept coming up um, again and again is just that I didn't really desire, um, like what was, what was currently happening or occurring didn't work for me. 
Um, and I actually wanted to, to play with a different space and a different energy. And so, um, one of, um, my team members had came to me and said, Hey, you know, we're looking at, or I'd like to, you know, look at opening a salon suite. And, and we've always been such a huge supporters of like, people creating their lives, whatever that looks like. If that looks like you opening up your own salon, if that looks like you getting out of the beauty industry entitled entirely, whatever that looks like, you got to do what works for you, create your life. Mm. Um, and so that actually was, it opened a door where I was like, okay, so if she's willing to choose this, then actually I don't have to worry about creating my life for these other people, which never works anyway. Yeah, so yeah. <laughs> like, okay, what do I actually want to choose? And so um, about like two and a half months, like two months in, I would say to the, the first shutdown, which was about three months long. Um, we made the decision to, um, close the salon and, and, um, you know, it wasn't something that was, that was made lightly, but what I will say is that there was a lightness to it in that, like, once the choice was made, I had so much space and I was like, okay, cool. Like, what can I create now? Like, what do I want to create now? Um, and so obviously we went through the, you know, conversations with the team and having to go through all the logistics of like shutting down and moving out. Um, and then I actually just opened a salon suite, um, in Hollywood. I'm really excited about, and, you know, I was able to take guests for a couple of weeks before we got shut down again. (laughs) But, um, I mean, that's definitely, I, I would say that the, the biggest lesson from that is that um, what what's been really cool to see is where my team is like they're all stepping up. Um, I mean, I say my team; they're all now autonomous hairdressers. But it's like they're they've all stepped up, created their own businesses. They're in salon suites. They're super active on social media now. Um, where they were they were active before, but now there's like this sense of ownership that they're really showing up in their businesses that like just makes me so happy and so proud. And mm. it's that's the thing that I've been looking at is like what if something doesn't have to be wrong in order for you to choose greater. Like what if it doesn't, it doesn't have to be, you know, we could have kept the salon. Luckily we had savings and all of that. Like we could have kept the salon going for, you know, probably another few months at least. Um, But it just wasn't, it wasn't fun anymore. And it wasn't what I actually desired to create. And so again, like not wrong, just making a different choice. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Before we um, started recording, you were talking to me um, about the, the three energies yeah. And I said to you, stop, stop. You can't talk about this now. You've got to wait. Cause it was great. It was great information. Yeah. And, um, uh, you know, I always in the back of my mind, not in the back of my mind on a piece of paper in front of me, when I'm doing these podcasts, I have written down, if, if someone is listening to this, what will they get from it? In other yeah. words, you know, you're the, you're the audience. You, you represent the person who is listening to this, 90% of them. And if you're going to give up an hour of your time to listen to a podcast or whatever, what are you going to walk away with it? You know, uh, walk away from that podcast with, you know, something you can use in your business. And, and when you were talking about the things you were talking about before, as in these three energies, which I want you to tell us about, I thought, wow, that is really insightful. And I know a lot of salon owners would benefit from that. So um, tell us all about what you mean by the three energies. Yeah. So, um, so the first thing too, for those of you that are listening, um, now and in the future, um, I would say, look at creating a business that actually works for you. Um, and 
And so often, like we force ourselves into business, it's kind of like a square peg round hole syndrome where we try to force ourselves into positions or situations that like don't actually work for us. And that's where we start to get burnout. And it's where we get exhausted is we're trying to do jobs that we're not good at or that aren't fun for us. And it's like, what if you could actually create a business that you don't need a vacation from? Um, And so one of the best ways to create that that I've found is with these three energies. So the three energies that um, every business requires, um, and they're not necessarily people, they could be three different people, but they're mostly just like energies, capacities need to be present. And the first is creator. The second is connector. And the third is mover. So with creator, connector, mover, creators are the ones that like have the great ideas. Like they're like, oh my gosh, I like, I, I think we should launch this new like um, marketing campaign. Or what if we, you know, change the layout of the salon to do this? Um, or, you know, they just have like ideas, ideas, ideas. They're the people that like in the shower, they're like, oh, I had this really great idea. <laughs> like yeah. in the shower, you know, it's there. Like that's that creative energy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then the connector is the second energy. So the connector energy is the person that like, when you go into an elevator, they're the one that's like talking to everybody and asking them how their day was. Or they're talking to them about like this great restaurant they just saw. Or they're walking to, you know, they meet a stranger on the street and they're like, oh, do you, you know, do you have a favorite? place or you know they're the ones that are just always they're connecting like they're Mm -hmm. connecting people um, and they're important to your business because they're um, they obviously are connecting your business to the outside world they're the ones that let the world know that you exist Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's why that energy is really really important and then um, third is the energy of mover so mover is someone that's like the institute or the implementation so um, say the creator has a great energy a great idea um, about a marketing campaign, the mover is the one that's going to make sure that their like verbiage is correct on the flyers. They're going to get the flyers printed. They're going to make sure that, you know, the systems are updated to include all of that. And then they're going to give that information to the connector and the connector is going to roll out, um, the, you know, and execute really. Yeah. So again, some people, some people are great. Some people are connector movers. Some people are creator connectors. Some people are creator movers. Like, um, and it's usually the one thing that you either think like, Oh, anybody could do that is the one that you are. So like, if you like always have these great ideas, but you're like, yeah, doesn't everyone like get to sit and just have these amazing extrapolation sessions? Um, no, they don't actually. Or (laughs) like sometimes, um, you know, people that, that our connectors, like they, they can talk to people and they are really personable. Um, but they, maybe it's not their favorite thing to do. So like for me, I'm, I'm the, and this is the fourth type is it's called foundational, which means like you have all of those capacities of creator connector mover. Um, so I'm like, I am a foundational person, but I prefer creator. That creator energy is really, really fun for me. Um, and I can connect and I can move, but it's not always my favorite. Um, and sometimes it is. I just let, myself, let myself have space for that. But what's important is um, when you allow those different energies to show up in your business, that's what actually allows you to create greater. Because as hairdressers and salon owners, um, sometimes CEOs, whatever your position is, those like helicopter overseer, like oversight type people can do all of it. But if you're trying to do all of it, it actually limits the amount that your business can grow. So by implementing or instituting people that have those or, you know, things that have those different energies, you, you actually allow your business to, to grow even more. I think it's really interesting. So it's like as a salon owner listening to this, it's understanding, well, what is my, you know, strong suit, you know, create a connector mover. What was the fourth one? 
Uh, foundational. F- foundational. You know, w- what is my strong suit? What am I naturally? And then understanding how um, you either need to develop those attributes within yourself or you need to employ other people who have those attributes. You know, I, I, I was, like you, a creator. Um, I used different terminology. I, I would just say I was a great leader in my business, meaning I'd come up with lots of ideas and, and, I, and I would just assume that they were all blindly falling into place behind me, but they weren't. You know, I happened to employ someone who was not a leader, but she was a great connector and mover. She was an yeah. implementer. She was, she was my, one of my managers. And, uh, and she very much was that person that you're talking about. So, you know, and she never wanted to be me and I never wanted to be her. So together it's like the yin and the yang and it worked, it worked really well. So uh, yeah. that's a, that's a, a, a great insight. Um, how does like, so now that you're getting out of your salon situation, uh, is it mainly, and I know you've got other businesses, um, mm-hmm. Is, is most of your focus going to be on sort of educational aspects now, coaching and educational stuff? Um, so I am actually like a big proponent of um, multiple revenue streams. Yeah. And um, as an entrepreneur, like I do have multiple businesses and most of them tie into, like I said, um, like wellness or, um, you know, personal development and like hair is is what I love. So working with my clients is really, really um, something that I have a lot of fun with. So I still work behind the chair. Um, like it'll, it'll probably be like three days a week once we finally can go back to work. <laughs> yeah. But like, um, and then those other days, it's like, so I'm a brand ambassador for Paul Mitchell all week. I've been shooting a new campaign launch um, at home, which is really hysterical to have like the media team up on the Zoom via Zoom, like coaching me through the right. delivery and then I'm self-recording like all this stuff. So it's been actually like, so I do a lot of that. Um, I do a lot of like podcasts and Facebook lives and things like that as a brand ambassador for Paul Mitchell. Um, and then the rest of the conversations um, are, yeah, I mean, I do a lot of one-on-one kind of business coaching, business extrapolation sessions, um, conversations, even just like we had a, had about creator, connector, mover. It's like, what are you? What's working? Who do you need to hire? Like, what do you need to ask to have show up? So um, for me, I even though I have multiple businesses, my what I've created is something where they all feed into each other and they all connect and create together. Um, I also have one of my other businesses is that I do, um, I create social media strategies for um, brands as well. Okay. So that also same thing, like being a brand ambassador, being a hairdresser, I built my business on Instagram when Mm. I started as a hairdresser um, years ago. And that's how I built my clientele. I went from zero to 257 guests in about six months. Um, which is like almost unheard of. People told me it would take me two years to build a clientele. Mm. Um, and, and I use social media to actually completely build uh, my business. Yes. So within and, six months, you had a solid returning revolving yep. client base of 260 yep. odd people. Yep. Good on you. That's, that's fantastic. Thank you. Okay. Um, now, one of the reasons I, you know, you know, why, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you about uh, is that I wanted to talk about the Black Lives Matter. Um, you know, movement for want of a better word. Um, and, you know, before I, I, you know, got on the podcast, I've been doing a bit of research and stuff and scrolling through different things on Instagram. And, and one of the things that one of the posts I saw, it wasn't yours. Um, I don't even know whose it was now, but it really stood out. And it just said, Black Lives Matter is not a trend. And I thought, wow, that is 
a strong statement and a really important statement that it is not a trend. So, you know, what I wanted to ask you about was, you know, it's a, it's a couple of months, I suppose, now since the killing of George Floyd um, and the resultant protests that first of all started in um, uh, Minneapolis and, and then have spread all over the world. I mean, we have plenty of them in, in the UK as well. Um, how has that affected change? Because it sort of exploded very quickly and it was very busy for you know two, three, four weeks. It was taking up a lot of news time, etc. And it really felt like a moment in time where everything was starting to shift. So from your perspective, talk to us about that. So what's interesting about um, George Floyd's murder is that it was definitely a tipping point. Um, but the Black Lives Matter movement is a conversation that's been going on for years. It started actually the Black Lives Matter movement started when Trayvon Mer Martin was murdered. Um, and that in and of itself is I think you you make a really good um you make a really good point because the Trayvon Martin conversation started in 2012. Like he was murdered in, I think, February of 2012. And, yeah. and then that's when the Black Lives Matter movement was created. And so what's occurring with the death of George Floyd, and especially in the way he was like brutally murdered by a racist police officer, like what's interesting is now people are paying attention in a different way. And it's like, also when I look at, again, the gift of COVID is that it was a time where people were at home, they were entrenched in social media. And so there was no looking away. So as much as it's been all these other, you know, um, all, all of these other black lives that have been murdered, um, you know, by police brutality, they're out there and it's on social media, but, but it wasn't as like people had to look at it. It was like um, the perfect storm. With George Floyd. Yeah, yeah, it was the perfect storm because people were at home, they're on social media. Obviously there was a full video of it, um, yeah. you know? And so, so it's really, really interesting to see, you know, even before that was Ahmaud Arbery and then we had Breonna Taylor. Like, so there were, there were consistent. And if you don't know those names, look them up. But like when you, you know, so there was this consistent like strain on social media where people could not turn away. And then finally George Floyd was that final tipping point where people just had enough. Um, yeah. And with that said, even 2012, when black lives started, it wasn't the first time we started talking about, you know, people, oh, black people losing, yeah. their, losing their, their lives at the hands of, you know, racism and police brutality. So, um, so it's not a new conversation. And yeah. that said, I'm really, really happy to see that it is a conversation that people are having. Um, and I think people that, you know, even like, like you said in the beginning, like, um, people that, that don't have the information are now going and getting the information. And people that before haven't been willing to have the conversations are willing to ask the questions, have the conversations, do the work, the research. Um, and ultimately that's what's gonna change is people understanding where they have privilege and using that privilege to actually affect change in the world. Yeah, how has it evolved over the last, you know, um, six to eight weeks, you know, as a, as a African-American woman, 
uh, for you, I mean, at the beginning, I mean, they're not protesting anymore. You know, uh, when I say they're not protesting, I mean, people aren't protesting. There was certainly here, and I know in the US, there was as many white people on the street protesting, or seemed to be, as as uh, black people. Um, how? Wh- where is it now at this moment in time? Because as you said, you know, California is now shut down again for the second time. So the things that are grabbing the, you know, the headlines, I mean, COVID in the US is... is um, out of control at the moment, um, and so it's back to grabbing all the headline space. So, so where has the Black Lives Matter and the, um, you know, the George Floyd? Where, where's the momentum uh, gone now with that? Well, yeah. So it depends on who you talk to. Um, so, I mean, some would say that like even this conversation is like another step in 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 re revitalizing kind of the conversation um it's never it doesn't ever go away and especially as like a person of color a black person um whether you're in america or in another country because they were protesting all over the world really after the after george floyd's murder um but what i will say is it really is about keeping the conversation going um there was a lot of like performative allyship that happened allyship that happened you know right off after the death um, of George Floyd. And um, I think it's interesting because there are people that, that for them it is a trend and there's people specifically black people, like they can't, they can't turn away from the color of their skin. So it's never something that they're not aware of. And what we can do to, to create and continue to affect the change is to continue the conversation. So it's the conversations that will create change because it really is now up to um, people that have like white privilege to step up and, and actually speak out on behalf of um, black lives. And, you know, I think it's a conversation where black lives, black lives matter exists because black lives currently don't matter as much as white lives in America. And that's just the reality. And so it's up to all of us to have the conversations, to sign the petitions, to protest if required, to speak to, um, you know, our politicians and people in places of power to change the laws. I mean, we've seen it happening even in recent weeks where like a lot of the statues are coming down. Um, like a lot of the schools that have, um, you know, historically um, have been named by like, you know, slave owners and Mm. and white supremacists, like those things are starting to change. Mm. Um, But we have to keep having the conversations and it really is about the action. So I think like the first part of that, of that time after George Floyd's death was um, a lot about the information and people getting, gaining the awareness. And I think that's still happening, but then it's like, okay, so what's the action? Like, who, what are we, what do we do about it to change and dismantle the, the racism and white supremacy that exists like in our culture? Yeah. And so things like what you said, statues are being taken down and, and names of places are changing. That's just sort of quietly going on in the background, is it? It's not like there's protests and statues being ripped down and, you know, thrown in the river and stuff like that were here. Well, some of it, I mean, I don't, it's not, I don't know that it's like quietly happening. It's like, mm. it's just, if you're looking, if you are, if you are looking like actively engaged in, in the, the allyship, then you're yeah. seeing that it's happening and you're aware of the conversations that are happening. So even for me personally, um, you know, I've, I've been trying consistently to post on social media, um, not just to create awareness, but also yeah. to, 
to like, if I do a post about it, I'd like to have some sort of action item attached to it. Um, Cause at this point it's like past the point of conversations. It's like, we actually have to take actions in order to dis- dismantle the system. Like it's the only way it's going to work is yeah. if we actually take steps. Um, and you know, the reality is that, that white voices are often heard um, more clearly um, than black voices. And so that's where that, you know, like even you being willing to have this conversation, like that's important because then that, that education empowers you to, to speak up on behalf of people that don't have the same voice that you do. Yeah, exactly. Um, I was going to mention your Instagram feed uh, and I will make sure I put a link to it in the show notes, but uh, for the audience, it's hair by Paula uh, Peralta. Um, yep. So at hair by Paula Peralta. And it, it's, there was one thing on there that I wanted to stare people towards, which was an image in your feed of a blackboard and on the blackboard, you know, with white chalk written on it, is a list of resources, you know, whether we're talking books, movies, podcasts, social media accounts, um, all sorts of things to sort of steer people towards to say, if you want to get educated, this is what you need to be looking at, reading, watching, et cetera. Um, and I think that that was a really helpful um, thing for me. There were some great resources on there. So, uh, so thank you for that. And I encourage other people to, um, you know, to go and, and have a look at that. Um, Can I ask you, as a black woman, how do you find that racism sort of manifests itself every day for you on the the street, just as a a woman living in America on a daily basis? How does that manifest? How does that show its face? Well, I think there's, I mean, it's... It is, I mean, it exists, like people have stigmas, they have prejudices, they, they, and, and it's not always the overt racism. And that's what really is the conversation is to look at the places where you are like quietly racist or you have privilege. Like, so even for me, like I'm a lighter skinned woman of color. So like I, I am treated differently sometimes than people that have darker skin tones than me, or Mm. because I am, um, I, I may be treated differently because I speak a different way than someone else because um, my accent may be different or whatever that looks like. It's like, those are the, those are the things that you have to be aware of. It's like where, where you have to look at your prejudice um, because it comes, it, it manifests itself very differently in different situations. So even within the beauty industry, like there have been times where um, I have been like labeled as like not black enough to like show up or present or do certain things. And then there have been other times where I've like been too black or, you know, so it's like, it's interesting to, it, it just like the racism and the prejudice it's, it is this, it's more that like undercurrent of racism that I experience a lot. Like I have experienced overt racism, but it's more just that like kind of like undercurrent that I, I encounter quite a bit. And, um, you know, and it also depends on like who I'm around. Like if I'm around my white friends, like I'm going to get treated differently than if I'm around my black friends. So it's like, all of that is, is what shows up on a daily basis. And, you know, I, for me, it's more like I worry about um, like my nephews and um, like my black friends that, you know, people are literally being murdered in the streets because of the color of their skin or they're being profiled. And then, you know, like all hell breaks loose. So um, that's for me, like what doesn't work. But I will say that the other thing that I've really been looking at a lot lately um, around this conversation of like racism and 
Black Lives Matter and all of it is like that topic of leadership and really looking at like, for me, a leader has an awareness and a vision of the world that they'd like to have show up and then they're willing to institute or do whatever's required in order to have that show up. And so for me, what I've really been spending a lot of time on is like, yes, being aware of the issues and like being aware of the conversations and also taking steps towards like, what, what do I actually desire to have show up in the world? Like what conversations can I have? Like what changes can I create now as Paula in 2020, um, to create the future that I know is possible. And that's really the conversation. It's not about getting into the, like, you know, the, like the trauma and drama of what's happening. It's about having an awareness of what's happening and also being willing to outcreate it to the point where you're like, okay, cool. So I'm going to be a leader and I'm going to create a situation. I'm going to create a podcast where I can amplify melanated voices. I'm going to sit on diversity committees where I can speak on behalf of black people. I'm going to, you know, and yes, maybe it's protesting, maybe it's rallying, but maybe it's signing petitions. Maybe it's posting on social media. It's like, being a leader doesn't look like standing at a podium every time, right? Like you can be a leader in a lot of different areas of your life, but it's like, be a leader of your life. And if you really want to fight racism and the systemic racism, then what are you creating in your life? Like, what are you instituting in your life that's actually going to fight that and be an example of a greater possibility? Yeah. I, I heard you uh, talking about the difference with, well, the use of language. And you were talking about the difference between someone saying, I'm not racist and um, not being anti-racist. And they were two different things. And I thought yeah. that was really interesting. Talk to us about that. Yeah. So, I mean, the thing about being racist is like, you know, it's, it's obviously like, okay, well, like that, that that person because of the color of their skin is less than right so that's like racism or obviously there's like lynchings or you know george floyd being murdered for no reason in the street by a racist police officer like that's being racist obviously yeah so but then there's like the there's then the other side of that it's more about the proactivity of of dismantling racism mm -hmm. so one like you can acknowledge like clearly <laughs> like clearly that police officer was, was racist. So, right. And you can look at that and have that information and just be like, yeah, that like, that's terrible that that happened, but that's not actually going to change anything. What's mm -hmm. going to change is you choosing and looking at like, what action can I take to actually make sure that this is not happening, that black people are protected, that they are given the same um, opportunities, that they are given the same respect, the same voice that white voices have, um, and so that's, that's the task of being anti-racism. Mm. So, so there's two things that you can do. The first thing is you need to educate yourself. So, yeah. and, and if, um, if you're not willing to do that, then, you know, the anti-racism work doesn't really, it doesn't really happen if you don't have the information. Um, and what I will say too, is I also kind of like, I don't love the, the rhetoric of like anti-racism because I don't like being, um, like anti anything. I think it's, it's just like, it's problematic, but that's another conversation, maybe another okay. podcast, yeah, but yeah. like, it's more just like, it really is like black lives matter. Um, so, and that's, that's the conversation I've had recently where it's like the reason my target is to get to a point where black lives matter isn't a thing because black lives actually matter. <laughs> yeah. But the reality is they don't matter as much now as white lives. So it's like, what steps can you take to actually make that a possibility and make that a reality in the world? 
Yeah. What, um, giving it a, a hairdressing focus for a minute, um, what steps does the industry as a whole need to do to be more inclusive? Um, so I think the, the first thing that I would say, I mean, there's a multitude of things. Um, there's a, there's a hairdresser in the industry, Naima Lafon, that wrote this really amazing, yeah. uh, like manifesto basically about, um, what, what people, what the beauty industry can do to support black, um, black artists. And the first thing is really, again, like I haven't spoke to it and I've experienced it where it's like, um, you know, black people are only brought on set when there's like a model with, with curly, like natural hair, when there's a black model or, um, you know, when they need like braiding done or those kinds of things that are like stereotypically things that like black people can do or black hairdressers specifically. Um, so it's like one acknowledging that stigma and actually don't just bring us on when, you need that. Like, we're also like, I'm a colorist. Like, that's my, I work with curly hair. I have curly hair. So like, I have that skill set. I can work with natural hair, but it's like my, like my love and my passion is hair color. And so when I start to look at that, um, you know, it's like, like, look at me as a colorist, look at me as a hairdresser, not just as, you know, a, a woman of color who, probably has this skill set. And I'll be honest, that's yeah. the other thing too to consider is that like, don't assume like I'm not a great braider. Like, mm. so, so don't assume that just because of the color of my skin, <laughs> yeah. I know I have a skill set because yeah. you can bring yeah. me on set and then you, we're both going to look real stupid. Like, okay. you know what um, I mean? So it's like, that's the thing. And then also just like so often, um, and this is a conversation around like, you know, racism in general, but it's like so often things are, um, are taken from black culture. Like it's very, very much trendy and fashionable. Um, but it's like, don't just like take from the culture, actually employ the people that have created those trends and have created that culture, bring mm -hmm. them on, like put them in positions of power, make them artistic directors. Um, you know, listen, listen to, to them as not at, from a tokenization, but from an actually acknowledgement of their capacities and skill sets. Yeah. Yeah. I will put, um, the uh, Instagram address for Naima Lafond into the show notes as well, uh, because that 11, she, she produced a guide basically, didn't she? And I know it's on her Instagram account. Uh, it was a guide of 11 things that the industry need to need to do to um, uh, address this issue and, and, uh, and make it more inclusive. Um, what, what do manufacturers specifically need to do? Is there any particular, you know, yeah. angle that manufacturers need to come at it from? Um, absolutely. I mean, a willingness to diversify. That's something that I've seen a lot in the industry in that, um, you know, a lot of times um, companies will do just enough to sort of include um, like black and brown people in their like marketing materials. Um, but you know, for example, if a manufacturer is marketing to a, they're, if they're marketing a product to like a specific hair type or an ethnicity. So like, we'll say like, if they're marketing to black people or natural hair, then they just need to make sure that their imagery represents that. I would just say like, you have to make sure that the representation is there. Like the representation absolutely matters. You need to make sure that from the top to the bottom of a cr the creation of a product, you have representation of everybody. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Um, uh, you know, we both have an involvement with uh, John Paul Mitchell Systems um, and it being a very large company and still a privately held company. I know that when uh, the Black Lives Matter movement started, when the George Floyd thing erupted, that they became very proactive and really, you know, uh, circled the wagons as to, OK, 
what do we need to do here? And let's really shine the light internally on ourselves. And, and you know, how can we improve in what we do, which I thought was amazing. And I, I gather you were quite involved in that. I don't know if I'm right in saying that. I'm assuming that you were quite involved with that. Um, c- can you can you tell me, are you able to say, um, wh- what are some of the things that John Paul Mitchell Systems have um, done to try and address this, not as a, um, you know, window dressing, but as a long-term sort of commitment to, to change? Because I know that they were or are incredibly serious about it. Yeah. Yeah. So what was really interesting is, and I will say that, um, you know, I actually with Paul Mitchell have had a really great platform over the 10 years with them, um, where I've, I've been given a lot of opportunities. I've had a really great voice with them and I've definitely had more ease and ease with them than I, I think other women of color, um, or black people like in other, you know, of, of any gender, um, have had with other manufacturers um, in that like there has very much been a like inclusivity with Paul Mitchell and that said, like we can always do better. Um, And so as soon as things, you know, really erupted with George Floyd's murder, um, Paul Mitchell did pause on their posting and then um, like regrouped, revamped. And I started to get pulled into conversations about like, what's next? What can we create? Where can we do better? And had conversations with um, like the executives in the company really about like, how can we, what shifts like do we need to make? Like what's working, what's not working. Um, And from that was born a diversity committee um, that's been, it's, been a lot of conversations um, and they, you know, Paul Mitchell released a really great statement talking about their three points and what their plans are to, um, you know, invest and educate and um, include uh, black people and people of color going forward. And so there, um, you know, there have definitely been conversations about, um, you know, allocating funds and, and making sure that there are positions where black people have a seat at the table. Um, so, you know, I, th- I think it'll be interesting to see what gets created from all of it. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm hopeful, um, that we'll be able to really lead the industry on what's possible with, um, inclusivity. And yeah, answer. fantastic. Good. Yeah. Okay. Um, t- taking a little bit of a shift on that for, you know, the average person listening to this as a, as a hairdresser, um, many of them will be salon owners. What can the average salon owner do? What can the average hairdresser do to be more inclusive and to, you know, uh, question what they can do, could do, should do uh, better than what they have? Yeah. So, I mean, I think for sure the the first thing I would say is um, really the education is really key. So making sure that every, so any person can walk into your salon and have their hair done and be serviced. So making sure that the education is there so that um, whether it's people, um, you know, whether like a black woman works in, walks in, she can have her hair done and be comfortable and the, have this, the stylist be comfortable with her hair as well. And the, the flip side of that as well, um, you know, making sure that there's diversity in the education. So salon owners can empower their team to make sure that um, they understand how to work with natural texture, with curly hair, um, and, you know, I mean, even as in, in beauty school, like I know that so many people would run from like the clients that came in with natural texture or a relaxer or a yeah. perm or whatever. And so, um, it's really amping up that education is one of the first lines of defense is just make sure everyone's empowered to create, um, on all hair types mm-hmm. and that everyone's comfortable in your salon. 
And typically, beauty schools are not geared up to do that. Any beauty school, is that what you're saying? Um, it's not, it's not even, the, it's not the beauty schools. It's cause I think that like in, and I can only speak to California, but I know in the state mm. of California, like that is actually part of what's required in order to, for your licensing. Mm-hmm. Um, you need to know how to do like relaxers and those kinds of things. It's more when you get into the salons that, um, that stylists start to specialize, but there's rarely an eye towards like specializing on in natural texture. So yeah. it's like, even if you have one, one stylist in your salon that could can work with all hair types or that hair type specifically. Mm. Um, like that's a step you can take is like, just look at where are you, where are you not inclusive? Like would a black person be comfortable walking into your salon? Sure. What does the image look like? What's the climate? What are the conversations look like? Mm. Same as you would like, you know, a white person, a woman, a man, whatever. It's like, make sure again, black lives matter. So mm. making sure that you're including um, that in the culture of your salon. Cool. Okay. Uh, what do you think the next two or three steps are, you know, to take this in the direction it needs to go? What are the the sort of milestones that need to happen? Well, I think we're not even to the point yet where people are acknowledging that racism and I'll speak to America. I think there's still a lot of people that need to actually acknowledge that racism exists, um, that like black lives are being murdered, lost because of the color of their skin. And also um, people understanding that they have specifically like white people have privilege. Um, And I know that's hard to hear. Like, I know Mm -hmm. I get it. I know it's hard to hear. And it's like, if that gives you some like, or you start to get a little about it, like then that's where you need to look at those sort of things. Like I've even had to look at that where like, again, like I said, as a, a lighter skinned woman of color, like, where is my privilege and where could I speak out in different ways? And it's like, we, our natural tendency is to want to like sometimes shrink back or like fight or be like, well, I'm not that I have, you know, whatever, like whatever the rhetoric is, Yeah, yeah, yeah. you got to actually like, you got to, if you want to change it, we've got to get present with it. Um, and then only then can we outcreate it. Yeah. Okay. Where, where do you see it in five years time uh, in, in an ideal situation? What, what, what would it, what would it look like? How would it have moved on? Um, I mean, uh, like ideally in, in, in five years times, you know, five years time, there would be, um, you know, there would be not only like laws to, to create equality and protect, but like the, the laws that currently don't protect black people, um, would be done away with. I mean, even when you look at something like the crown act where, um, there's, and I'm so terrible at the statistic, but there's like a, a 40 something or 30 something states currently where like someone can, there's, there are laws in place where they can be, people can be discriminated against because of, um, the, their hair. Like, yeah. so if a black woman walks in with an Afro or like, even there was a video of a kid, um, this came out like a year or two ago, maybe that like had to cut off his, um, locks in the middle of a wrestling match because the, like referee was racist and decided that like his locks didn't, you know, um, weren't appropriate yeah. in the match. So he would, he, his choice was either forfeit the match or, um, cut off his hair. And so he chose to cut off his hair, but it's like that, like that right there is a perfect example of like the insidiousness of like the racism that exists in our country. And it's like, until we have laws in place to protect or create something otherwise, then yeah. it's going to, Un- unfortunately it's not, but just in your country. Um, yeah, totally. It's, pre- it's pretty well everywhere. Um, yeah. 
yeah, you know, and uh, I think we'd all be we'd all be being naive to think that it wasn't. I mean, it's it's uh, you know, as you said, this whole thing with George Floyd, it, it was a, it was a mixture of the fact that it was filmed like from beginning to end, mm-hmm. uh, and it was on social media, and I never considered how it was also amplified because of the fact that everyone was on lockdown. So you couldn't be busy being busy doing other stuff. You had to look at this and you had to acknowledge it uh, on, on mass. So um, it, it, it certainly, um, you know, went off around the world in a big way. And um, it'll be interesting to see, you know, how it moves on. It certainly feels like it's moving on. It feels like when I say moving on, changing uh, for the better, um, and, you know, I, I just recently uh, watched that movie, 13th Amendment. Uh, I'd never seen it before. Yeah. And, okay, I know the focus on that, and that movie is on America, but it, it was like, oh, my God, I had no idea about that movie and, you know, what that movie is all about. So I encourage people to, to watch that as well as many of the other good resources that you um, listed on your Instagram uh, feed. For people that need education, and you've said that several times, get educated, get educated. And uh, so the resources that you, um, you know, direct everyone to on your Instagram feed, I, I highly recommend that people avail themselves of that. Um, we have reached a point where we need to wrap up, unfortunately. Um, I will um, put the link to your Instagram channel um, in the show notes. But for anyone who's not going to look at the show notes, um, could you just tell them what your social media handles are so that they can go directly there and have a look? But I will put it on the, on the show notes, as I say. So, uh, yeah, what, what is it? Totally. Uh, so you can find me on Instagram at hair by Paula Peralta. That's usually the best way to find me. I'm also on uh, Facebook as Paula Peralta. And uh, you can also, I have a website, paulaperalta.com. And those are, those are all of the ways that you can reach me. Instagram is cool. usually the best way. Like I'm usually most responsive there, but no yeah, cares. I've noticed. Yeah, that's 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 <laughs> that's where I'm going to choose to try and connect with you. <laughs> well, you have my phone number, so you can text me. Oh, yes, exactly. I can now too. Okay, so um, as we're starting to wrap up, if you're listening to this podcast with Paula Peralta and have enjoyed it, then please do me a favor: take a screenshot on your phone and share it to your Instagram stories. I would really appreciate that. So to wrap up, Paula, thank you very much for being on the Grow My Salon Business podcast. Is there any final words that you'd like to uh, say to our listeners before we let you go? Uh, I would say the biggest thing is like, do what works for you, be you. um, And that's actually what's going to change the world. So, um, you know, if there's, if there are things here that, that intrigued you to look into a little bit more, do that. And if there's things that aren't true for you, then they're not true for you. And that's fine. So it's like, you got to know, that's the thing. You got to know what's true for you. And that's, what's going to allow you to move through the world with ease and to create the change that you'd like to have show up. So. Cool. Well, thank you very much. You're very articulate. You've got a great message and a great spirit for getting that message across. So uh, yeah, once again, I want to thank you for being on the podcast, uh, Paula Peralta, and hopefully we can talk to you again at another point in time. So yeah, that would be amazing. Thanks, Anthony. All the best. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, you'll find us at growmysalonbusiness.com or on Facebook and Instagram at growmysalonbusiness. And if you enjoyed tuning into our podcast, make sure that you subscribe, like, and share it with your friends. Until next time, this is Anthony Whitaker wishing you continued success.